You know what that sound means. It's time for the Michigan DNR's Wild Talk Podcast. Welcome to the Wild Talk Podcast, where representatives from the DNR's Wildlife Division chew the fat and shoot the scat about all things habitat, feathers, and fur. With insights, interviews, and your questions answered on the air, you'll get a better picture of what's happening in the world of wildlife here in the great state of Michigan. Hello, and welcome to Wild Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Leitner, and co-hosting with me today is the wonderful Hannah Schauer. Oh, quite the introduction. Thank you. Uh, So today's podcast is a great one. We will be fielding your questions from the mailbag, and we'll also be chatting about the uh, statewide wildlife happenings. And then we'll be visiting with the director of the DNR, Dan Eichinger. Then we'll wrap up the podcast talking about some upcoming small game hunting seasons and some premium grouse hunting opportunities on our gems. But first, let's hear about what's going on around the state. Did you know that Michigan is the number one state in the nation for woodcock harvest with excellent habitat for woodcock, rough grouse, and more? Visit michigan.gov hunting and start planning your bang up fall quest for upland game birds. Welcome back to the Wild Talk podcast. We're about to hear all about the great things happening for wildlife around the state. So I'll get us started with the Upper Peninsula Report. Don't forget, if your Labor Day weekend travel plans include crossing the Mighty Mac, keep in mind that the Mackinac Bridge Authority will close the bridge Monday, September 2nd from 6.30 in the morning to noon uh, for the 62nd annual Mackinac Bridge Walk. Be sure to plan accordingly. We have some habitat improvement that is underway at the Sturgeon River Slough Wildlife Management Area. We're doing uh, structural improvements, including a new central water pump, a dredged water supply ditch, a new berm on the goose pasture or farm fields, and ability to flood this goose pasture farm field area, um, which means great habitat for waterfowl. So construction on this project started last fall, but all this rain that we've had this spring has kind of put the project on hold until the summer. Uh, As of August 7th, about 95% of this project is completed and staff have been pumping water into the impoundments. These impoundments will allow for better control of water level management, therefore improving habitat for wildlife that use the area. Additionally, staff will have the ability to flood planted fields, providing habitat for migrating waterfowl. We've also been working on some uh, invasive species work on Drummond Island. Uh, and that's in eastern Chippewa County, uh, where we have a globally rare community type called Alvar. It's kind of a grass and sedge-dominated community um, with some scattered shrubs and sometimes trees. It's usually kind of a broad, flat expanse of bedrock that has a very thin layer of soil on top of it, like extremely thin. Um, And so during an inventory process on state forest land, our DNR staff identified invasive plant species that were a potential threat to this uh, very fragile system. In 2017, the DNR worked with partners through Three Shores Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area, so SISMAS, which you may recall us discussing in previous podcast. And these groups surveyed the system. Partners from the Three Shores SISMA, including the DNR and the Nature Conservancy, worked together to survey over 600 acres of the system. 
The survey identified problem areas and helped to inform management decisions for potential control efforts. The DNR and Three Shores CISMA used the survey information to plan control efforts. In 2018, over 40 acres of treatment occurred with most treatment areas near roads. Um, We've also done some additional surveying. The Three Shores CISMA received grant funding to continue control efforts, and in 2019, the CISMA crew has treated over 50 acres. So the DNR and CISMA hope to continue monitoring and control efforts to maintain this very rare community type into the future. We will uh, be sure to include uh, a link. So for those of you who might want to learn a little bit more um, about this rare ecosystem in the Drummond Island area, we'll have that link for you to check out. And one more tidbit that we have from the Upper Peninsula uh, at the Newberry office. Our staff hosted an open house last month, kicking off the Silver Creek Birding Trail. So this trail is complete with trail signage and a kiosk, was created by a student volunteer, Evan Griffiths. Uh, The trail is located about 10 miles north of Newberry. We had 17 attendees participate in the open house, including a Boy Scout troop. And participants were able to take a hike down the trail, had some snacks, won some door prizes, and had a great time experiencing the new trail. Uh, So be sure, if you're up in that area, to check it out. It's a very cool place. So Rachel, what is happening in the Northern Lower? There is a lot of excitement in the Northern Lower right now, as it's time for one of the most coveted hunts in Michigan. It's elk season! Hunters from all over the state got together for the fall elk hunting orientation in mid-August, where they met with DNR staff, learned the elk hunting rules and regulations, and the history of how elk in Michigan came to be. The first hunt period began a few days ago for 100 lucky hunters, and of those 100 tags, there were 70 antlerless only tags and 30 elk tags awarded. Good luck to all of our hunters on their pursuit of a prized Michigan elk. And through the rest of the region, staff have been attending trainings, working on budgets, and their work plans uh, for our new fiscal year, which begins on October 1st. All right, Rachel, what other updates do you have for us? How about the Southwest region? What's happening over there? The Southwest staff recently completed a compartment review at the Langston State Game Area in Montcalm County. This process involves the local habitat biologist reviewing specific state game area compartments in consideration of the various management plans that we have in place. These plans are designed to provide direction to local land and wildlife managers as they develop state game area master plans and then implement those management activities. The plans are comprehensive and detailed, paying close attention to regional featured wildlife species, rare plant and animal communities, invasive species, and forest management. Also in Southwest, The Trowbridge Dam, which is located between Allegan and Otsego on the Kalamazoo River, is currently under construction to have the dam removed. The construction began mid-August, and intermittently while the dam is being removed, the waterway access will be closed off to boaters, kayakers, canoes, or anyone wishing to access the waterway. So if you're planning to access the Kalamazoo River, you will want to check the day of to make sure the gate is open um, or if it's closed because there is construction to remove the dam that day. So Hannah, what's going on in the southeast? Waterfall season starts today. Early goose and early teal seasons are now open statewide. 
So wildlife staff in Southeast Michigan have been hard at work preparing the wetland wonders and managed waterfowl hunt areas for waterfowl hunting seasons. Crops like corn, buckwheat, small grains are growing and will provide fall food for the ducks and geese and offer some cover for hunters during those waterfowl seasons. Beginning of the growing season was rough though, with plenty of flooding and heavy rains, which we'd mentioned before, kind of delaying uh, getting things planted. So some of our fields will have significantly less cover this year uh, than previous years, so be prepared for that. Staff will begin flooding corn and grain fields in late September, early October. So flooding provides great resting and feeding habitat for migrating waterfowl. Hunters should have good conditions at the managed waterfowl hunt areas for upcoming seasons. Open houses at each of the managed waterfowl areas will be available again this fall. Check the DNR website for dates of each of the areas or the show notes will include a link. You can also check refuge counts and condition reports at mi.gov slash wetlandwonders. Point Mulier State Game Area hosted numerous birding tours in August. We had several Southeast Michigan Audubon clubs like Macomb Audubon and Oakland Audubon hold caravan-style driving birding tours. It's a rare treat to be able to drive around the 20-plus miles of dikes at Point Mulier, so these trips fill up fast. August is an especially great time to find shorebirds. While fall migration is occurring, rare migrants frequently show up. Point Mulier is also home to some unique Michigan breeding birds like American white pelicans, blue grosbeaks, and king rails, which are infrequent breeders in Michigan, so they're not often found here. Point Mulier is a great spring and summer birding locale, and starting today, September 1, the area's use largely shifts over to hunters. Really quick, for those of you who are teachers or know of a teacher, now is the time to register for our free wildlife educational curricula for the classroom. Uh, You can find uh, registration information at michigan.gov slash DNR education and just look for the wildlife classroom curricula link. Uh, We'll also include links in our show notes. Did you know that Michigan lies where the Atlantic and Mississippi migratory flyways intersect? This brings over 340 species of birds to Michigan each year. Follow My Birds on Facebook to learn more about our feathered friends, year-round guided bird walks, stewardship events, and community science opportunities near you. My Birds is an education and outreach program created by Audubon Great Lakes in the Michigan DNR. Search My Birds on Facebook. That's M-I Birds. Welcome back, and thanks for tuning in to the Wild Talk podcast. Today in the studio, we have a very special guest. With us is the director of the Department of Natural Resources, Mr. Dan Eichinger. Dan, welcome to the Wild Talk podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Yeah, we're so excited you're here. We are. We're excited to have you here and to pick your brain a bit about conservation and life of the director. Uh, so we'll just jump right into it. Uh, what's a day in the life of a director like? Um, I go to a lot of meetings. <laughs> I sit in a lot of conference rooms. Um, it's weird. It's a little different than, you know, some of the other other things I've done in my career where, you know, you might have like, you know, a set certain number of tasks that you have to do there's you know reports that you write or things you know there's things that you produce on sort of a daily or sort of cyclical basis 
And this this job isn't like that at all. It's a lot of um, it's 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 a lot of meeting time, and it's just kind of sitting and talking to you know staff internally, talking to external folks, legislators, uh, interfacing with the governor's office. There's just a lot of a lot of that time, and much less of it is you know producing producing a something. It's a lot of you know just make you know making decisions, or more often than not, just asking the right questions when you're in those meetings. So we're lucky to snag you for a few minutes out of your day. No, this is perfect. It's just another <laughs> meeting, right? This is this is what I do. I just sit and talk all day. <laughs> it works. Yeah. So, what sparked your interest, and what made you decide to be director? Uh, well, it wasn't really my decision. I mean, it was the governor's decision. Um, but you know, in the fall after the uh, after the election, um, you know, I was working in the conservation arena already. And had a lot of folks uh, that I worked really closely with on sort of the advocacy side or the NGO side that were, you know, encouraging me to say, look, this is, you know, you should kind of throw your hat in the ring and, you know, you should raise your hand for this. Um, you know, I, I did that and met with um, met with some of the folks who are on the transition team, talked to them a little bit about things that I, you know, things I thought we could accomplish and work together on in the department um, and had a chance to talk with the governor um, shortly before Christmas, uh, about the opportunity and, and, um, met with her a couple of times about it and, uh, and then got the phone call that, uh, they, they wanted to offer me the, the position and it's been, uh, it's been just a lot of fun. I love it. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have you. <laughs> yeah. So before this then, what were you doing with your career professionally? Well, I, um, immediately prior uh, to this job, I work for Michigan United Conservation Clubs, which is, uh, um, it's a statewide organization, member-based organization, um, and uh, have been in the executive director there for about four and a half years. So I, I joined MUCC in 2014, um, actually went back to MUCC. I started my career there as an intern uh, and spent some time on that staff uh, really early on in my career. So I kind of bookended um, some time with state service uh, with with uh, MUCC. And, and before that, I worked as an administrator at Central Michigan University for a couple of years, actually doing nothing related to conservation. Um, but that was really, um, I, I enjoyed that. It's cl it was close to home for me, which was kind of the main uh, the main thing. My kids are still you know pretty young, but they were really young at that time. So I really felt like I needed to be closer to home. And, um, and then, of course, prior to that, I worked in wildlife division. I was a legislative liaison for DNR. Um, and you know, prior to that, I worked for Lieutenant Governor Cherry, who was a policy advisor on his staff. Um, and before that, I was working at MUCC. So I've, I, you know, with the exception of those couple of years at, at CMU, I've worked, you know, my entire career exclusively in the conservation space. Given your previous experience, do you have any advice to anyone who's interested or already in the conservation field? I, when I was getting my undergraduate degree at MSU, I was not, you know, I wasn't studying biology. I wasn't was in a wildlife biology program, was in a fisheries program, was in a science-based program, was in a political theory program. And um, I'd always sort of had a recreational interest in doing stuff outdoors. And it was it was through that internship experience that I kind of saw, you know, I thought, okay, well, there's, you know, there are career pathways for people who are not sort of following that traditional path. And early on in my career, I saw that there was this sort of interesting intersection between folks on the you know, kind of the political policymaking side who really had a hard time understanding folks who were, you know, biologists or science-based. And I saw a lot of biologists and, and science-based folks who really struggled to understand the world that, and the perspective that policymakers and political folks were bringing to the table. And so, 
you know, kind of where those two lines sort of intersected or in some cases came into conflict with one another, I thought, well, that's that's a really interesting place. Like trying to carve out a niche right in that right in that space was a good good place for me maybe to try and land from a career standpoint. You know, that that was kind of that was always kind of the the niche that I worked in. There was that sort of where the policymaking world meets the very science-based, research-based natural resources management world and trying to, you know, help translate back and forth uh, among those groups and and be an advocate for both perspectives, you know, whether it's to natural resources managers trying to help, you know, connect some of the dots about how some other, you know, public policy issues might sort of indirectly be brought to bear on natural resources management. But then also, you know, for policymakers and political folks who maybe don't come from a natural resources background or user background, uh, to really help understand sort of the guiding principles and the lodestars for our, you know, how we conduct that management. They're two kind of fundamentally different worldviews at times, and and we all know they come into conflict with another with one another occasionally. So I I really wanted to try and I just thought that was an interesting place. I didn't see a lot of folks who were really kind of intentional about working with a foot in both camps. And um, so as I kind of started to plan out like what my career arc was going to be, I mean, I didn't think I was going to be here necessarily, but I just thought, you know, always kind of working in that space would probably be about where I always spend my career because I just find it really rich and interesting. And, you know, I feel like we can get a lot of good things done when we get, you know, when we're able to understand some of those different perspectives and and navigate them a little bit and, and bring them together. So we talked a lot about meetings. Is there something that makes being the director worthwhile or what's your favorite part? Mm. You know, there's a there are a lot of there are a lot of ways to answer that question, because I think I think being the director is a, is a great job. Um, you know, f- you know, one of the most one of the most important things is I'm surrounded by incredible, talented, creative, professional people who work in this department. You know, this this work that we do. Uh, it was interesting. It was one of the things that that the governor and I talked about back in January when she came through and was visiting each of the state departments real early on uh, in the administration. She just wanted to get a feel for meeting some of the staff and understanding, you know, some of the work that they do. And, and we had a few minutes in my office ahead of time before we went around and dropped in at offices and that kind of thing. And, and she's like, well, what do you want me to know about the Department of Natural Resources? And you know, it would have been really easy to kind of go through and cite like all the sort of back of the baseball card type statistics. But I, what I told her, I was like, you know, the people who work in the Department of Natural Resources are a little bit different than than other folks that may find a career pathway in state government. This work is, it's not really a job, it's it's a calling. And, and people feel very called to doing this work. And, you know, project a lot of their own sort of their own sense of self-worth and their own value system on the work that they do. And that's, you know, I think that's a pretty unique and a pretty special thing. So a lot of what I really enjoy is being able to, you know, work alongside people who are really passionate about what they do um, and are really creative uh, and talented and have a good sense of uh, history um, and and have a lot of fidelity to the, like the history of professional conservation. Um, but at the same time, are also really willing to think about and look over the horizon and see no opportunities, embrace new ways of thinking. That's a lot of fun. The other piece that I, I you know, I, I enjoy a lot is I just feel really comfortable, um, really comfortable in this role. Like I've been around, you know, been around this community for a long time. We have, uh, we have wonderful stakeholders, 
um, who don't always agree and don't always have um, nice things to say about us and 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 that kind of thing. But it's a really it's a really fun and rich space to work in because you know our stakeholders and folks that the public that we serve, you know, this is all avocational for them. So it's not it's a little bit different than you know if we regulated a business community or we you know we did a some other function you know that you might find in say government collected taxes we you know we're doing um you know provisioning community services or something along those lines this is all very sort of avocational a lot of recreation and interest-based work that we do with our public and so there's a lot of passion there too and i i like interfacing with our stakeholders i've worked a lot with our pretty with our traditional stakeholders and one of the things that i've gotten a lot of enjoyment out of is I never spent a lot of time in the city of Detroit before this job. I spent some time down there, but um, seeing the possibilities and the prospects of how we can, you know, work with communities that maybe haven't, we haven't engaged as much within the Department of Natural Resources or haven't been as present in some of those communities, finding ways and inroads that we can, you know, provide a pathway to nature for, you know, a kid or a family who haven't felt like nature has been very accessible to them. Uh, up until that point that's there's a lot of you know that's that's a lot of fun i mean we're kind of a laboratory for a lot of really cool ideas and we get to play around with that stuff here and i think that's just it's it's fun laboratory for a lot of cool ideas i really like that (laughs) so i know you have some interest and background in um, natural resources and kind of getting out and enjoying the resources that we have do you have a particular favorite outdoor activity or species to hunt for uh yeah i'm a pretty ardent grouse and woodcock hunter that's it's a thing i really like to do i had to when i got real serious about grouse and woodcock hunting i had to kind of forsake bow hunting because archery deer season in october you know you can't it's hard or at least it was hard for me to be serious about bow hunting and serious about bird hunting and uh when i got my dog um you know that kind of became at least my all-consuming focus for the month of october anyway so my favorite my favorite bird hands down is um the american woodcock it's a fascinating study in evolutionary biology and how they are just very different birds i mean you know, everything from how like their skulls are put together where their brains are in their skull i mean there's just all these cool like you know, sort of adaptations that that woodcock have undertaken, and they're a cool species um, because they're you know they're migratory. They have you know, so it's not we have more American woodcock in in Michigan than anywhere else on the on the planet, um, but that's a shared resource. You know, because it's a migratory uh, it's a migratory species. So I think woodcock are neat. They taste pretty good too. Some people t- say they taste kind of livery, but <laughs> there's <laughs> liver's not my thing. But I really like to eat woodcock, but um, so that's, you know, that's kind of a thing I like to do. I like to fly fish. Um, my wife's getting into fly fishing, uh, a lot now. So, uh, that's something we're able to do together. So we've gotten, we've had some fun, uh, doing that and kind of getting back into, I did a lot of fly fishing when I was younger, you know, things happen, you kind of get away from something and you set your fly rod down for a while and you might pick it up a couple of times a year and, you know, with her interest in fly fishing, that's kind of renewed my interest in fly fishing. So what sparked your passion for natural resources? Was there any uh, specific thing uh, growing up that helped kind of spark that passion for you? Mm-hmm. I, um, 
you know, I grew up, uh, my, my dad, and my grandfather were real, um, active sportsmen. We, uh, hunted and fished, we camped a lot together, but they were also, you know, in addition to being really active, you know, active sportsmen themselves, they're also really active in uh, the conservation movement in Michigan. Both were really active in MUCC, the organization I worked at for a while. Both were active in the National Wildlife Federation at the national level. Um, so sort of parallel to this recreational interest in being outdoors, hunting and fishing, there was always um, sort of commensurate with that recreational interest was this stewardship responsibility. And so I, you know, I kind of grew up always knowing that that those were, you know, two sides of the same coin, that it was, you know, if you're going to be a, a hunter and angler, you also have a responsibility to be a steward of the natural resources, being an advocate and articulating for what is good conservation and science-based natural resources management. That was just sort of the house that I grew up in. That was just kind of baked into our DNA that that's, that's just kind of how we see the world. I always kind of thought, well, I'll, I'll follow sort of the same path that my, my, my dad, my grandfather did, which was they had their own sort of sort of business careers and careers that they pursued on their own and that, you know, being active in conservation was sort of a volunteer uh, exercise for them. And I always kind of thought, well, that I'll, that's, the, that's the same path I'll follow. And as we talked about a little while ago, it was, you know, not until I was almost done with college that I kind of saw, well, there's, there's, actually, there's a career path here. Um, and that's a career path that I want to get on, that I can do this. And, and someone's actually going to pay me to work on this stuff. And that's, that's kind of neat. Later on in my, in my dad's career, uh, once we were all sort of launched and on our own and, and adults and that kind of thing, he he actually moved into the conservation space uh, professionally and worked uh, worked for a nonprofit organization, Rough Grouse Society, doing conservation work at that level at the end of his career. So he kind of at the tail end of his career was able to kind of bring his recreational interests aligned with what his uh, with what his career was. Very cool. It's really awesome when you can align your passion with your career. Yes. Yes. Dan, I have a question in regards to something you mentioned earlier, um, and this can be a controversial topic, but what kind of dog do you have? Uh, <laughs> now, there are some people who will re remain nameless, I know, who work in this building <laughs> that believe you dishonor the grouse when you shoot it over anything other than an English setter. Um, but I have a wire-haired pointing fine, so I have one of the continental breeds is a Dutch breed, um, it's a versatile hunting dog, so he uh, points retrieves. He can do uh, water retrieval uh, and that kind of thing. But he's uh, he's big and ugly, and um, but he's a he's a great dog. I've I hunted over Griff's a number of years ago and really enjoyed it. I you know I love hunting over dogs. We had uh, we had setters when I was growing up, and setters are great dogs. And but I ended up with a Griff, and I'll probably never I'll probably never not have a Griff now. <laughs> Let's shift a bit and talk a bit about one of Michigan's greatest natural resource achievements, the Pigeon River State Forest. Mm -hmm. uh, so 2019 marks the 100th year of the Pigeon River State Forest, and that's quite a milestone. Why is this forest in particular so important? You know, it's it's the big wild. Um, it's, it's something like 118,000 acres of contiguous forest land in the Lower Peninsula. That's a big footprint. It's a big chunk of dirt. Um, that's relatively accessible to a lot of folks who live in the state of Michigan. The big wild was always sort of intended to be managed a little bit differently. I mean, the first sort of um, vision for the Pigeon River country was articulated by P.S. Lovejoy 
you know, kind of talked about this concept that there are, you know, there are some places that we need to, you know, very carefully and intentionally um, balance use and have really dedicated sort of focused intentional management um, plans for the Pigeon River Country. In large measure, we as a department and uh, the Pigeon River Country Advisory Council and, and a whole bunch of other folks that love the pigeon um, have been sort of faithful to that original intent and that we've had sort of fidelity to place. The pigeon is, it is unique in and of itself, but it, you know, but it's also sort of the idealized representation of sort of this legacy type commitment to, you know, a specific purpose and, and that some places are just special and we manage them that way. We're very fortunate to have such a large swath of land, not only for wildlife habitat and our forest resources, but just for that recreation for people just to go out and explore and enjoy. Yeah, I mean, it's a place um, my my grandfather was uh, one of the charter members of the Pigeon River Country Advisory Council. So he served on the Pigeon River Country Advisory Council from like 1973 to the mid 1990s when he passed away. And that was always, you know, we always thought that was a pretty big deal, you know, because that's you know, that's kind of a cool, that's a cool connection, uh, cool connection to that place. My dad and I used to camp up in the Pigeon. We'd fish a lot on the Pigeon River, on the Black River. Uh, I caught my first brook trout on the Black River. So the Pigeon, you know, the Pigeon is a remarkable place. And it's also been a place that's been the subject of some controversy too. I mean, you know, the whole debate about oil and gas development in the 1970s, the genesis of that was, was the Pigeon River country. Um, and that dispute sort of gave rise to the Natural Resources Trust Fund. And the concept of, um, you know, the extract, you know, the extraction of non-renewable resources, and can we convert that into a revenue source by which we can make investments back into the acquisition of public recreation land? I mean, there are a lot of, you know, a lot of roads and a lot of threads that that are sort of woven throughout the Department of Natural Resources in some way, kind of end back at at the Pigeon River Country. It's just a, it's a remarkably special place, and and. You know, people who go there, they connect with it for very, you know, very different reasons. I mean, certainly hunters and anglers use that place uh, tremendously. We have folks who, you know, make use of the trails for hiking and and other things, you know, pick mushrooms and berries and that kind of thing. But everybody, you know, everybody sort of projects their own value onto the, onto the pigeon. So it's sort of this, in a lot of ways, it's sort of like this crowdsourced piece of conservation history because everybody has a little bit of their own, has a little bit of themselves that are are in it. It means a little bit something different to everybody who goes and uses that place. Yeah. I read today that the Big Wild is a very fitting name because it spans 107,600 acres across the northern lower peninsula, which is half the size of New York City. Mm -hmm. So it is vast. Um, so if somebody was listening to this podcast and they decided they wanted to visit the Pigeon, do you have any recommendations on where they should start or things they should go to? What's something you have to see or an area you have to go to at the Pigeon? You need to go to the, the headquarters building out there and then you need to go back, uh, go back around there because we have a little museum that was set up there. Our uh, team from the Michigan History Center helped kind of provide some of the consulting for for that interpretive space, and that kind of tells the story of the Pigeon River Country. and And so, I think everybody needs to to make a point to go and visit that spot because that's a that's a it's a cool location. It was uh, an endeavor of the advisory council and some of the community around the Pigeon River Country to kind of get that off the ground. We need a place where we can tell the story of the pigeon. And like I said, the team from Michigan History Center and other folks within the department helped work on the displays and the interpretation at that place. The thing everybody wants to do when they go to the pigeon is to look at elk, right? So you yep. <laughs> go, 
you want to go and find uh you got to find elk so that's the other reason you got to stop in the headquarters you got to find out where the elk are at that particular moment but beyond that i mean honestly the best thing to do in the pigeon is just get kind of lost in the world but sort of find yourself there that's 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 the thing that's the uniqueness that the pigeon can offer you within 15 miles of i-75 that's what that's an experience that you can have and there aren't a lot of places in this country where you can say that. It sounds like uh, the Pigeon is certainly a place that has a little something for everyone, whether you're a, a hiker or an angler or a history buff, uh, the Pigeon has something to offer. Yes, it is. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking a little time out of your busy day to chat with us today, Dan. We really appreciate all your insights and we're uh, happy to have you as our director here to kind of lead us into the future as we move forward with our various conservation activities throughout the state. Cool. This was fun. Thanks for having me. Pure Michigan hunt applications are on sale now. If you want your shot of what is considered Michigan's ultimate hunt, pick up a $5 application or two. There's no limit to the number you can buy. If you're one of the three lucky winners, you'll get a hunting prize package worth thousands, as well as licenses for elk, bear, spring and fall turkey, antlerless deer, and first pick at a managed waterfowl area for a reserved hunt. Purchase anywhere hunting licenses are sold or online at michigan.gov PMH. Hello again, I'm Rachel and hosting with me is Hannah, and we're going to continue this episode by answering some of your questions from our mailbag. <laughs> Okay, our first question from the mailbag uh, comes from Robin, and Robin asks, what is the difference between using food-based scents and urine-based scents? Uh, so for those of you who have been uh, following along, we've recently had some regulatory changes uh, for the upcoming deer season. Um, so you can use food-scented materials uh, whether composed of natural or synthetic materials, as long as they're made inaccessible for consumption by deer and placed in a manner to prohibit physical contact with deer. Um, so these would be things like oil-based attractants, scented wicks, and so forth. Um, Urine-based scents are legal, such as mocks, grapes, drag ropes, and so forth, as long as these products have the Archery Trade Association, ATA, symbol marked on the packaging or bottle. Uh, it's just the food-scented materials that need to be made inaccessible for consumption or physical contact with deer. Um, and remember, baiting and feeding is banned in the entire Lower Peninsula. Uh, so you can find out some more uh, about those regulations if you need to in the Hunting Digest um, in the deer section. And um, we also got a question from John related to deer hunting as well. John asks if we're offering discounted antlerless licenses in the CWD area this year. Yes, there is a 40% discounted private land antlerless license for purchase in the chronic wasting disease management zone in the Lower Peninsula. However, it is important to remember that this license will expire on November 3rd. So it's a uh, discounted antlerless license, but it is valid through November 3rd. So do keep that in mind if you're planning to get one of the discounted licenses. You want to use it earlier in the season. Rachel, do you have any questions from the mailbag to answer today? Dan wrote in to us asking if antler point restrictions applied to youth hunters during the Liberty Hunt. To answer Dan's question, antler point restrictions during the Liberty Hunt do not apply. 
This firearm deer hunt will take place one weekend earlier this year on September 14th and 15th, and during the hunt, a deer or deer combo license may be used for an antlered or antlerless deer. And another new change to note this season, youth hunters are now allowed to hunt with firearms on both private and public land. If there are any youth planning to hunt on public land, depending on your age and whether you were hunter safety certified, you may need to have a parent or guardian accompany you. So please be sure to check the Hunting Digest for those rules, and we can link to the show notes as well to our Hunting Digest so you can make sure to be following the new regulations. I received a question from Tori regarding turkey hunting. Tori is an avid turkey hunter, but a new resident to Michigan. She is looking for recommendations on where to turkey hunt. First, welcome to Michigan. You're going to love it here. Second, Tori and anyone else looking for a new turkey hunting spot should check out the Turkey Tracks locations. Similar to our Grouse Enhanced Management Sites, or GEMS, these pieces of public land are specifically managed for turkey habitat. There are currently four turkey track locations across southwest in the mid-Michigan area. And speaking of turkey hunting, the fall season is almost upon us. If you did not apply for a license during the application period, but are now interested, you're still in luck. Available leftover licenses will go on sale September 3rd. Hunters may purchase one license a day until quotas are met. To learn more about our turkey tracks or the fall turkey season, visit mi.gov forward slash turkey. Well, as we zip this segment to a close, remember if you have questions about wildlife or hunting, you can call 517-284-WILD, email dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov, or stop by one of our offices. Your question could be featured on our next mailbag. September is the perfect month for elk viewing. If you're looking for a fun, free outdoor adventure for the whole family, visit michigan.gov elk and download your elk viewing information sheet from the elk resources section. Then, guided by your elk viewing map, fill your tank, grab your binoculars, and load up the family to head out to the elk range in Michigan's northern lower peninsula. Don't miss out on seeing Michigan's majestic elk or hearing their bugle echo through the fall air. Visit michigan.gov elk to plan your elk viewing adventure. Well, we'll close out this month's podcast talking a little bit about small game hunting opportunities that are on the horizon. Small game is one of the most inexpensive and fun ways to get into hunting. Whether you're new to the sport or you've been an avid rabbit or squirrel hunter for decades, now is the time to purchase your base license for only $11. Your base license doubles as your small game license, opening tons of hunting opportunities for you this fall. Uh, cottontail rabbit, snowshoe hare, ruffed grouse, and gray and fox squirrel seasons open on September 15th, and woodcock season begins shortly thereafter. So there are ample opportunities to get out and enjoy the fields and the forests and try out some of that small game hunting if you haven't thus far. And Hannah, if you purchase your base license and are looking to do a bit of grouse hunting this fall, be sure to check out our GEMS. These grouse-enhanced management sites are areas of habitat specifically managed for grouse. With mowed walking lanes, downed trees for drumming logs, and open parking areas with trail maps, these sites provide premium hunting spots with ease of access. There are 19 gems across the northern lower peninsula and the UP. 
each one of them ready to flush a few birds for an enjoyable hunt. For more information on the gems, visit mi.gov forward slash gems, but we'll also include the link in the show notes as well. These are really awesome habitats to go check out. As you mentioned, Rachel, these sites have excellent uh, walking lanes and down trees and, and parking areas. They also have excellent kiosks that you can see a map of the area and get a little more information, which are super uh, helpful for you, if it, especially if it's your first time out at one of these particular sites. And we hope to see you out in the woods. This has been the Wild Talk Podcast, your monthly podcast airing the first of each month and offering insights into the world of wildlife across the state of Michigan. You can reach the Wildlife Division at 517-284-9453 or dnr-wildlife at michigan.gov.